continue on uh, in our sermon series, Jesus is King, walking through the Old Testament book, 1 Samuel, and we're going to be uh, talking about the theme uh, for tonight, which is uh, a king in action. And so Israel, they have a king, uh, they have been uh, given King Saul as their first king, and he has been anointed, he has been proclaimed as king, so it, it's all but um, official, but he is yet to, at this point, really function as the king. So um, what do you do when you have a king, but you don't get to see the daily benefits or blessings of a king in practice? And you're kind of in nowhere's land there. And that's where the Israelites are in this uh, chapter 11. They find themselves at the beginning uh, under attack, and then they have to find out if their king is really going to be all that a king is cracked up to be. And I think uh, for them, they believe the king primarily should be one who fights the battles for them. That's what all the other kings of the other nations did. And so Israel expected the same thing. And Saul, uh, to his credit in this chapter, delivers on that promise. Now, that is the primary blessing uh, of a king. is you serve the king, but the king fights for you. The king protects you. The king gives you rights as you serve him. And I think... Uh, for Christians, we find ourselves in a similar position as the Israelites tonight. Uh, sometimes, anyhow, we find ourselves professing Jesus as Lord, and yet many of us struggle to let him fight our daily battles. And so uh, it's been said when it comes to the gospel, and it's been said in many ways, but uh, since it's summertime, I'll use the pool reference. Uh, it's not only the diving board, uh, but it is the whole pool. I don't know about you guys, but when I was growing up and I was in swim lessons, I hated, out of all of the things we did, I hated most everything about swim lessons, but out of, out of all of the different uh, ways you can learn to swim, the treading of water, like the doggy paddle, that was the most annoying. It's such a helpless position, is it not? Like you just, you just kind of do this number and kick your little feet, and um, I got a thin frame, so like I didn't generate much water, and I was always struggling to keep my head above water. It was a miserable uh, swimming position, but I, uh, I remember the one position I, I fell in love with, and really it's the only one I like, and if I get in water even to this day, um, this is the one I go to. It's the one where you just lay on your back, and you just kind of lay there, and it's like, wow, this is completely different than all the other ways you can swim. You just kind of rest on top of the water, and the worst thing that can happen is the water itself washes over your face. And I think I see that with a lot of believers. Um, we have launched into uh, what we call the Christian walk or the faith. And the gospel message was so beautiful. It saved our soul. We confess Jesus as Lord. We, we know, man, this guy 2,000 years ago who claimed to be the son of God, his life, death, resurrection has given me the forgiveness of sins. Like we learn that, many of us from a young age. And it's beautiful. And on that day of salvation, we believed that was power to save our soul. And yet in this Christian walk, we're just doggy paddling. And some of us are struggling to keep our head above water. And it's miserable. And if the gospel is true to not only be the diving board that launches you into the faith, but the entire faith itself, shouldn't we be doing more than just keeping our head above water? Like, shouldn't there be uh, some victory in the daily battles. And so um, as we walk through this, I want you to ask yourself tonight, am I letting Jesus, am I seeking Jesus to fight my daily fights, my daily struggles? Because I know 
if you're in this room tonight, you've got stress. I know there's worries. Uh, I know life is busy and hectic and crazy, whether it's trying to figure out where you're going to live over the summer uh, before the next semester starts or what job you're going to work or um, struggles at home with the family, uh, with your spouse, loneliness, your job, whatever it might be, we've got struggles. And I don't know about you, but I need Jesus in the struggles. And so let's walk through this tonight and let's see how we can not only find Jesus fighting our battles for us, but uh, helping others to do the same as we make disciples. So 1 Samuel chapter 11, starting in verse 1. We're going to walk through this, just 15 verses tonight. Verse 1 says, Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eye. Sounds like a pretty good deal, huh? And thus bring disgrace on all Israel. Verses 3 and 4. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. And when the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. All right, pretty somber to kick it off. Well, let's stop right there and talk about these first four verses. First thing we see is that without a king, you're going to compromise. If you don't have a king, you're going to compromise. So here's what's going on. The Israelites, they have land, but keep in mind, at this point in history, uh, they didn't have a great military presence. So if they were going to fight battles, if they were going to protect themselves, they had to go gather all the tribes up and put something together. There was no king um, prior to Saul, so there was no real um, military force in general. It was just a bunch of farmers getting together and fighting. That's why it seems so hopeless. And so the Israelites were standing here in their land, just farming, doing their thing, not expecting to fight the Ammonites because to the west of them was the Philistines. And we see a bunch of battles with the Philistines prior to this. And we're going to see throughout 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel a bunch more battles with the Philistines. So you know the Philistines are punks and they're going to fight you and you just know you got to deal with them. The Ammonites, though, they're over here to the east and they, for the most part, have had uh, pretty good luck with them. But the Ammonites are on the rise, and, and they're wanting to take over uh, different parts of Israel. So if you're the Israelites, you're thinking, we knew we had to deal with the Philistines. Now we got this dude named Nahash, whose l name literally means snake. Like we got this snake guy over here who, who is so, he's so confident in their ability to crush us that he has actually agreed to give us seven days to go find whoever we can find to come fight. You've got to be confident that you're going to win a war if you're like, you know what, I'll give you a week to gather up whoever you can. That's how little credibility the Israelites had. But we're going to see uh, that they did find a dude named Saul, and he rallies the whole community together. And, and we're going to see by the end of this chapter that the Ammonites are conquered in all of this. So isn't that how it goes, though? You feel uh, like some enemies to the left and enemies to the right. They put a little bit of pressure on you. Life does that. 
You know, you can say all day long you got a king in Jesus, but life will see if that's true or not. It's going to put pressure on you. You can't just walk through this life sitting on a pew saying, you know what, I went to church, grew up in a church, uh, Jesus is king, without life itself testing you on that over and over and over again. And so it happened to them and it happens to us because if you are tested by life <laughs> and you are not sure as to who your king is, uh, the world will offer you kings a whole bunch of them, and they will lord over you, and they will be nothing compared to the one that you have an opportunity to have in Jesus. But it says that they went and tried to make a treaty. So, like, if I'm, if I'm a group of people that have a king, like, I'm not seeking to make treaties for myself with other nations. I'm just going to get the king, and, and the king is going to take care of things. You look at our country. You look at um, the statistics that we see many folks say, well, Christianity's dying because the statistics show that the number who, of people in America who claim to be Christians is, is going lower and lower and lower. And I don't know if the core of Christianity is dying. Matter of fact, I, I would argue that it's actually growing, those who are, are truly um, found in Christ. But those who are nominal in the faith, who had relatives who were Christian, uh, those who didn't want to say I'm an atheist or agnostic, and I'm certainly not uh, a different part of uh, another religion, so I'm just going to mark Christian in a box. Those, uh, they are going left and right as the waves of culture change constantly, are they not? I mean, you look at uh, just the politics scene, and I'm not going to dive into that because we could be there all night, um, but you look at where all of this momentum has come from, and you think, man, a lot of the people who, who are in uh, approval of the immorality in our country used to be the ones claiming to be Christians. You see a lot of mainline Christian denominations who for a long time seemed to be solid, but then over the years they, they, they became more like a country club or just a business or an organization and less like uh, people who truly follow Jesus as Lord. And you see them now shifting as the culture shifts on their beliefs. There was one just last week that met in Oregon for their general conference, and they were split. And we're talking the third largest Christian denomination in America. They were split right down the middle as to who wanted um, the church to adopt gay marriage as a belief, as something they're okay with. And those who say, no, <laughs> our, our, our bylaws, our constitution, like we don't believe that. The Bible is obviously against that. They've decided they're going to explore their beliefs for the next few years, as if somehow the Bible's changed. That's what happens when you don't have a king. You compromise. You go with the way of the culture. And it's happening all the time. And I think a lot of times we, like the Israelites, um, we have a king in Jesus, but it's kind of unofficial. Like we go to church enough to think, man, he's got my back. Like surely he's got some favor on me, um, but I'm going to be ticked if my life doesn't go the way I want because God should owe me something because I've gone to church a few times, even served once in a while. And yet when the battles rage, uh, we don't find ourselves calling on him very often because he really wasn't Lord in the first place. You see, that's where uh, the Israelites finally did go right, is they make this treaty that's obviously not that great, gouging their eye out, right? And for the, the Ammonites, they're saying, listen, we'll take out your right eye because not only does it disgrace you, but if you got your, your shield up like this <laughs> and, and it's covering your left eye, your right eye, if it's gone, then you can't fight ever against us um, and not not only is it just degrading so they find themselves making this treaty uh, but then they actually go out and find Saul who is their king and, and they're going to call on the king in the midst of battle 
tell you what, there's a lot of power in calling on Jesus in the midst of battle. You would think that um, it would be a given, but there's something in calling on the name of Jesus that just adds power to the situation. The enemy hates it when the church uh, professes Jesus as Lord in the midst of the battle. I remember when we uh, first started ministry, and many of you know I didn't grow up in the church, so I don't have any kind of religious background. Um, spiritual side of Christianity, I'll be honest, like it's, it's low on the attractive side for me. Like I like objective truth. I want to know what is true in this world. That, that's what's, that was what was appealing uh, to me in the faith. And so when it comes to spiritual stuff, good versus evil, uh, angels versus demons kind of stuff, I'm just like, yeah, stuff's kind of weird to me. Even as a pastor, sometimes it, it's weird to me, although it may be uh, certainly a reality. And anyway, we went out to Utah, and there was just spiritual oppression that even uh, an inept spiritual dude like myself could uh, tell was there. And I remember we were just maybe a year into it, and someone in the church had asked us to uh, come over to their kid's house. Um, they had kids who were grown, and they said that they wanted their house cleansed because they had evil spirits in their house. And said every year at Halloween, evil spirits would come in, and it would just be haunted. They'd have doors slammed, they'd have voices, they'd have all kinds of weird stuff. This was actually common. We heard about house cleansings happening on a regular basis. And I'm like, man, what is this? Like the exorcist stuff? Like go to the Catholic church? I don't know what to do. Like, what am I supposed to do? They don't teach you in seminary. Now when you do a house cleansing, you're going to do this little ritual. Like I, what, what do you do? I know there's no guidebook on that. But any chance I have to minister to someone, um, I'm, I'm going to take it. And so I went over there, and the house was just creepy <laughs> in general. They had, like, no lights on, just a couple lamps. I'm like, eh, I don't know if it's haunted, or you guys just need some lighting updates. But anyway, <laughs> we sat down for two hours, and it was tense, and it, it, it was just a weird, creepy-feeling house. Um, but I told them through that, I said, listen, I could walk through this house, and, and I can uh, do all kinds of little ritualistic stuff that I'm going to make up on the spot. But you can have the same power I have, and I shared the gospel. For two hours, we talked about the gospel, and how the only thing I've got that can help the situation is Jesus, and he is greater than whatever spirit you might have in your house. And so I explained it to them, and, and they, that night, professed Jesus as Lord. And by the time we got done, you could tell the house had just lightened. Uh, the, there was just something that was removed, and we walked through from room to room. They're telling me, okay, this is uh, where most of the activity is and all that. And I didn't know what to do, but I just said, I just prayed out loud, Jesus, you are Lord over this house. God, we profess you as Lord. And I just, I just started talking about Jesus is Lord. He is greater than whatever spirit's in here. You can't be in here. Like, I don't even know what I was doing. I just started just professing truth over it. And that was that. We didn't have any more issues. It's just something powerful uh, when you call on Jesus in the midst of the battle whether it's whatever you're stressed out with today or a raging spiritual battle that you've had your entire life. It changes things. Sometimes I think when we're um, discipling other people, <laughs> you can go far down the road of discipleship, assuming because they grew up in church, assuming because maybe they come to your collegiate ministry, assuming because they like doing Christian stuff, that they're solid when it comes to Jesus as Lord. That that's not a question. But you ever get deep into the discipleship relationship where you're like, okay, we're intentionally going to influence each other for Christ. And then you start wondering because of some of the decisions they make, like, are they even saved? <laughs> like, I, like, I should have maybe started there, but I'm kind of questioning. Like, I shouldn't have assumed that that was just a given. 
think it happens on a regular basis. I think it happens a lot where we try to guide and give good advice, rational uh, advice to kingless Christians. I think some of us, the way we disciple people, if the Israelites in the seven-day period would have come to us and said, we need help, we would have said, well, you should go to church on Sunday. Um, you should read your Bible a little bit more. There's power in the Word of God, right? Um, that's good. You should serve. Have you thought about volunteering in the church? It's wonderful. When anything less than, you need a king to save your life, would be downright evil. And yet some of us are meeting with people, we're in community groups with people, we're pouring into people, and, and there's still a big old question mark as to whether Jesus is actually Lord of their life. It's okay when you disciple people to ask them the hard questions, the questions that are uncomfortable. To ask them, what, what are you obeying that Jesus has commanded you? What, what part of your week is not just your own plan, but his plan that you heard from him? He told you, hey, live this way, walk this way, abide in me. What, what battle are they going through that seems crazy dramatic? Because you know it's dramatic. That you can't just ask them, have you called out to Jesus in the middle of this thing? I know you, you're a Christian. Have you called out to Jesus in the middle of this thing? You might be surprised at some of the answers you get. Sometimes those of us closest to the church are furthest from Christ. See, Israel's issue wasn't that they didn't have a king is that they didn't have a king over the everyday stuff of life. And when your king is Jesus, but it's kind of unofficial, you're going to have insecurity. You're going to have a lot of insecurity. Verse 5. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. Keep in mind, this is the king, and yet he's just out farming. Right? You'd think he would have other things to do. But like he just he got anointed king, now he's just farming. Like that, that's kind of the state of the Israelite nation right now. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. Five times prior to this in the Old Testament, Israelite men uh, and women had the Spirit of the Lord rush upon them. Every single one of those times, uh, the direct action was to, um, was to serve and fight for the people. When God's Spirit is on you, um, you are for the people. You are for his people. So if God's spirit is in his church, in his people, how much more should we uh, see that kind of power as we serve one another? Verse 7. And he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. It's getting weird. Let's stop there. Second thing we see is that Jesus' sacrifice is better. Jesus' sacrifice is better. So Saul is the hope, right? 
you got seven days to find someone who's going to save you. Saul, he's your king, but you've never had a king before, so you're new to this, and you, you, you're just learning how to call out to him in the middle of the battle. And so Saul is, is the hope, and yet the people, <laughs> what a great hope, because the people are coming together as one, unifying, but they got dread. They just feel dreadful. What a hope. Yeah, you're unifying them, but they're miserable. You see, it might work for military battles, but not in the spiritual battles of life. Let me ask you, what are you dreading this week? It might be small stuff. It might be stuff at work. It might be decisions you got to make. It might be relationships. It might be someone you got to see that you don't want to see. An issue you got to face that you don't want to face. What's taking front seat in your life this week? Because you know there's always something fighting to get in the front seat. Here's a good practice that's good for every single one of us. Uh, Whenever you face uh, a stressor, whenever you find yourself worried, whenever you find yourself up against a fear, simply to ask yourself this. Because you know our perspective uh, can get distorted really quick if we just let the circumstance beat us up. Ask yourself, how does the cross change this? And how does the cross of Jesus change this? Because i got to believe that Jesus didn't die for his church so that we could be miserable throughout the week. I'm not saying he's going to bless everything, that we're going to be happy, life is all, you know, just wonderful all the time. But man, i got to believe that his death means we're going to have joy in the midst of junk and we're not going to be as stressed out and worried and worn by the world as some of us are. How does the cross change this? Let's look at five things real quick. And you can just sit under this. You can just let it wash over you. You can write it down. You can do whatever you want. But I'm going to say five things that we see in this sacrifice. So Saul, he he sacrifices this oxen and says, hey, (laughs) if y'all don't come out here and fight, your animals are going to be dead just like this. That's your party invitation. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was different. So let's look at five ways that we see the differences between Saul or, or your worry, your stress, whatever you got going on um, this week in your life, and Jesus' sacrifice. Because there's some differences. First one we see is kings give life by threatening death. But Jesus promises life by his death. Jesus promises life by his death. So again, Saul says, hey, if you guys want to live, you've got to come out here and fight. <laughs> Great. So we could die in battle, or we could just die because you hate us. Win-win, right? The world does this, though, right? This is, this is the world's way of promising happiness, and so many of us fall under this trap. And you can confess Jesus as Lord all day long, but this is where you've got to check your heart, whether you find yourself wanting to climb that corporate ladder, um, whether you find yourself uh, judging your life by the health of the relationships. Like if I don't have a perfect friendship with these people, man, I'm just a nobody. If, if I don't have a great, wonderful, perfect marriage, I'm a failure. If I haven't accomplished this by this age, then I'm a loser. If I haven't worked um, my way up the ladder in this amount of years at work with my career, man, I didn't meet my own expectations. You get down real quick. I mean, look at the retirement culture that we have. 
in America. Every single one of us that grows up in this culture knows this is the gist of how you do it, right? You sacrifice and you work hard, hard, hard. All those years you put in your time and then you retire. And when you retire, you might get 10 minutes (laughs) or you might get 10 years or 20 years where you just get to relax. You get life. So if you just get enslaved and just work hard, pay your dues, man, it's going to pay off and it's going to be wonderful at the end. And yet how many people get to retirement and say, huh? Didn't all it was cracked up to be. It would be a horrible feeling. And yet it happens all the time. And so if you let your circumstances, if you let your king, if you let whatever stress in you out say, you know what, you just got to work harder and you got to climb this ladder and then you will find true life. You got to shift your focus the other direction and say, you know what, it's not about the ladder they think I should climb. It's about the imaginary ladder that Jesus descended on when he left his throne in heaven, came down onto earth, became one of us, died for us, did the work for us, was a sacrifice much more holy than we could ever be. To give us life that we could never have outside of him. It might be about a ladder, but it's not the one you're climbing. It's the one he descended. The gospel. Number two. Kings make you fight for them. But Jesus' death conquered the grave and sin for you. Kings make you fight for them. But Jesus' death conquered the grave and sin for you. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but I'll mention it again. There's not an idol in your life. There's not something you have taken and you have put on a pedestal in your life. Whatever your hopes and dreams, your goals, whatever you've got that you've said, you know what, this is going to lead me. This is going to be my lighthouse. This is going to guide me. There's not one of them outside of Jesus himself, not one of them that can be sustained by their own power. Every idol you have in your life, I'm, I'm saying things you're stressed out about even, the things you're worried about this week, none of them have power without your approval. None of them have influence over your mind, your soul, your heart this week without your approval. They might be clamoring for your attention, but they don't get in the door unless you open it. And that's the thing about idols, is they promise happiness, but they force so much sacrifice and exhaustion because we're holding them up the whole time, making them think there's something special. And yet we just enslaved ourselves. Saul might be a great guy, but he can't win this war unless they fight for him. How great is a king if at the end of the day you've got to be the one fighting your own battles? How many of the stresses do you have in your mind right now where they're battles you've fought self-inflicted? You don't need to be fighting a lot of that. But the ones you do fight, Jesus wants to win for you. On the flip side, there's a rest at the cross. And the work is done by Jesus. And you can sit in that and rest. And I'll say this, when it comes to the sin that he conquered, because here's here's the bottom line. If Jesus conquered the grave, and he did, if he conquered death, (laughs) like he said, what can man do to you? Kill you? Like, what can man do to you? Kill you? You don't fear them. You fear the one who who can do something to your soul. That's God himself. So there's not anything in your life that should make you worry 
or control you and take your focus off the Lord who, who really has control. Number three, kings sacrifice for each battle, but Jesus' death is enough for every battle. So Saul, this is going to be a great victory. It's going to be a wonderful story. It's going to make 1 Samuel chapter 11. It's going to be great. But at the end of the day, there's going to be a bunch more battles and a bunch more stress, and they're going to find themselves having to gear up all over again. And yet we see in Hebrews that Jesus died once for all. Some of us were worrying over the same stuff. You find yourself this week fighting the same battles you fought last week, and the week before that, and the month before that, and the year before that. And you say, what's going to break the cycle? Has the cross lost its power in your life? How in the world does Jesus' death mean that we can be saved in our souls, and yet it's not enough power to conquer what you're worried about this week? And the truth is, there is enough power, and it hasn't gone away. And we don't need another Jesus to die on another cross. There was one, there is one, and it's enough. It's enough. It doesn't run out. Number four, kings need to take control, and Jesus is already in control. Now, here's the thing. Saul's saying, you guys, come on. I'm going to intimidate you so that you come and we can be in this together. But he's the one, he's got to make the initiative, right? He's got to have the initiative. He's got to take control of the situation. Whether you feel it or not in your circumstance, if Jesus is Lord, we know what Scripture says about Jesus. We know he is God in the flesh. We know that he created all things. Colossians says all things were created for him, by him, through him. We know the power that Jesus has. He's already in control. It's just whether you're going to believe that and whether you're going to submit to that. There's a rest for those who believe. Because here's the thing. Whoever you trust, there's a control and trust go hand in hand. And so if you're letting your circumstances, if you're scared, if you're like, I don't know, I can't trust them, but you're, you're letting them have control of things, you're going to have insecurity all day long. But you trust Jesus because you know he's already in control. He's got this. He's got a good track record. And last but not least, kings force lordship by fear, and, and Jesus draws you in by love. So you look at anything you're battling this week, this month, whatever, you, you see what's going on. What do they have over you? What pull do they have over you, right? And in almost every circumstance, one thing is in common, and it is fear. Well, I, I can't let this relationship fail, because what am I going to do without him? i got to worry about whether uh, there's going to be tragedy to strike our family, because what would I do without my spouse? I don't know what I would do without my kids. i got to make more money, because I, I can't be on the streets. I can't lose my job. I can't lose my house i got to be responsible because if I'm not, then here's the consequences. You see, that's what circumstances do. That's what other kings do. They make you believe there are incredibly bad consequences if you don't worry. Some of us think we're getting brownie points if we worry more. Like those who worry care more. As if that's the way it works. And God's sitting back saying, you know what? The world clamors for your attention, and it drives by fear, but the cross 
is wooing you in with love, with grace, with freedom. Jesus is saying, you know what? (laughs) If you are weary, if you are heavy laden, you come to me. Sometimes that's the quietest voice in the room. But it's the most powerful truth in the universe. Is it not? I think every one of us, when we find ourselves worried throughout the week, we know the still small voice of God is saying, the promise is still the same. If you are heavy laden, come, find rest in me. Yeah, but I know, I know, I just got to take care of these things. It's just, oh, this week has been crazy and I'm so stressed out. Listen, the cross sets you free from the things that the world wants to enslave you to because what? You're, you're trying to find your approval in them? The cross says you got your approval in Christ Jesus. You're trying to find your identity by your job, by your relationships? The cross says you got a brand new identity. You're trying to keep up a reputation? The cross says you're, you're a new creation. You don't have that reputation anymore. The cross changes everything. It changes everything. Jesus' sacrifice is better than Saul's sacrifice. Verse 8. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. So pretty good for a bunch of farmers. From Genesis to 2 Kings, the second largest gathering of military is right here. Pretty decent for his first battle. Now, he threatened them, so it wasn't like they just signed up uh, on their own. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. And when the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day, so that's, that's to the Ammonites, right? So good news comes to the men of Jabesh that, hey, you're going to have salvation. We're going to fight for you. And that's what Israel is saying. We got your back. So then they're going back to the Ammonites saying, hey, couldn't find anyone. We're going to give ourselves up to you. They're, they're probably partying that night. The military is not thinking there's going to be a battle the next day. Verse 11. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, morning watch, so this is between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m., and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. No two were left together. Third thing we see in chapter 11, Jesus' messengers have better news. Jesus' messengers have better news. You see, every king promises something, right? There's got to be promises. If there are no promise, uh, what's going to make me want to serve you? And so um, Saul is promising salvation, freedom. We're going to save you. And to his credit, he delivers. Now, the Spirit of the Lord was on him, so it's God who's doing it. But he delivers. Jesus obviously promises us salvation, and he delivers as well. Now, ours is much better because not only is it uh, physical, but it's uh, spiritual and it's eternal, not temporary, like Saul's. And so we, as his messengers, have a much better message. You see, for the Israelites, the message they got is they should have faith in something that's about to happen. But for us, we have faith in a message that has already happened. It's already happened 2,000 years ago, and it's already happened. Let me focus on this. Let's talk about discipling others. 
Now, through this, you might find some healing uh, for yourself, but let's talk about ministering to others in this. I mentioned earlier, uh, it's easy to get caught up in people's drama. Um, some of you, you've got folks you're pouring into right now, and you hear stories, don't you? Stories every week, the drama changes, it maybe shifts characters, but it's the just crazy new stuff all the time. And we've all got those friends, like Andy would say, if, it's, if you don't have those friends, you are uh, that friend, right? But we, we all hear those stories about drama. Sometimes it's just overwhelming, and you think to yourself, what can I do? Like, your situation at least the way you're portraying it is so scary, it's so big. Like, what could I possibly offer you? And you're assuming, man, they know the gospel, right? Because there's hope if they don't have any clue about the cross. But if they're just a Christian that you're pouring into and you're thinking, I don't know what else I got. I don't know what to do for you. But every situation can come under the lordship of Jesus, and the beautiful thing for us is that we don't have to throw out a message that demands faith for the future. We're talking about placing our faith in something that's already happened. Like, it's a reality. The news is not, oh, it could happen. Things could get better. The news is, <laughs> with what Jesus did 2,000 years ago, right now, how you feel, regardless of what's going on right now, the reality of the situation under the lordship of Jesus Christ, your perspective can change like that. You got all the hope in the world you need. It's in Christ Jesus, though. And everyone needs to be reminded of that. That's the beautiful thing. And disciple makers, <laughs> we're not bringing new news. We're bringing good news, and we're reminding people of it over and over and over and over, ourselves included. Ourselves included. And see, when we, when we pour into people, when we influence them for Christ, when we make disciples, there's usually two paths you can focus on. Uh, the first one is, is some of the external discipleship stuff. So you sit down with someone, you're pretty confident, man, they, they know Christ, um, Jesus is Lord, they prayed their prayer, did their baptism thing, everything's pretty good on that front. Uh, so then you focus on, okay, the spiritual disciplines. Let's talk about uh, studying your Bible and, and praying and, and what that looks like. If you're super spiritual, you get into some of the ones like meditation and solitude and all that good stuff. Or you'll say, okay, let's, let's focus on serving. The next step for you is to get plugged in the local church and really, you know, be serving. Let's find your spiritual gifts. All these things are good. All these things are good. While others focus on the flip side, which is just the inward. We're, we're, we're asking questions and we're poking, like, what's really happening in your heart? What's happening in your circumstance? What's happening in your situation? Because I think for some of us, if, 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 if we're going to err on one side of that, it needs to be the inward compared to the external. Because there's nothing worse than pump it, pouring into someone, pumping your time into a, a situation, a relationship, to find out you led them in all the ways that look like they're a Christian, <laughs> and you missed the most important stuff. They had big-time core issues going on. Sometimes you even hear it as they're telling stories, as they're talking about perspective, as they're saying, saying what's been happening in the week and, and their view on it. You're like, man, I hope you don't really believe that about that. Uh, whatever. Hey, let's go to a Bible study together. And, let's, you know, and it's easy to push it off. There's an old French poet. He said... Um, said, if you want to convince men to build ships, don't pass out shipbuilding manuals. Don't organize them into labor groups and hand out wood. Teach them to yearn for the vast and endless seas. Teach them to yearn for the vast and endless seas. There's a lot of ways about going 
about this discipleship thing, but you've got to start with the heart issues. You can show them what it looks like to be a Christian all day long, but they've got to yearn. They've got to want Jesus. There's no making up for that in other ways. We can't serve enough to change someone's heart. They've got to want it. I remember when I was early in ministry and, and the situation Tara and I were in, uh, it was so frustrating because we had folks coming in all the time who, um, whether addicted to drugs, uh, whether they had, oh gosh, just the laundry list of external immorality. And it just seems so frustrating. We're just like, man, you just, you're just not getting it. And we would try to help them in different ways. You're just not getting it. I remember I was so frustrated one day and, and the other pastor I was serving alongside with, he said, why are you so stressed about them? Like, you're pouring in, why are you so stressed? Like, because <laughs> I just don't know what else to do. He said, just pray that God would reveal himself to them. Pray for revelation. What a novel idea. What a novel idea. That's what they need. That's what I need. You know how much burden falls off your shoulders when you stop trying to make someone look like they're a decent Christian and therefore you're a good disciple maker, but you just pray, even in the worst, craziest of drama-filled situations, like, God, reveal yourself to them. The Holy Spirit, reveal the gospel to them. I'm going to share it. I'm going to tell them. I'm going to walk it out with them. But only you can penetrate the heart of this person, just like you penetrated mine. Pray for revelation. Discipleship has been compared before uh, to balloons, helium balloons versus the balloons that you just blow up with your own lungs. You ever walk into like a birthday party or somewhere and you see the balloons and you know right off the bat whether they got helium or whether someone, some old poor husband spent way too long and all of his energy trying to blow up these balloons. Now the helium ones, you can notice them because the helium keeps them lifted high. But the ones blown up, by you and I are just kind of sitting on the floor and the only way they're going to be lifted up is if you and your own strength lift them up. And sometimes that's what it's like as disciple makers, isn't it? We're trying to pour into someone and so this week, uh, whether it's from the stage or, or you know, one-on-one, -on -one, but from the stage, the preacher might say, you know what, this week, uh, let's focus on serving. And they give a great sermon about service. And so that week, uh, the disciples in the church, they're just like, okay, well, we're going to volunteer, you know, and then they sign up for the nursery until the first, you know, blowout diaper, and then they bail on that. But then the next week, uh, the, the preacher says, hey, you know what, we need to be generous, we need to be cheerful givers, and this is what it looks like to really want to give to God. And, and so then that week, they focus on, okay, well, let's give a little bit more money um, until it gets costly. And then they bail in a week on that. And then the third week, they're talking about spiritual disciplines. Yeah, I need to pray more. And their entire Christian walk is simply lifted off the ground every now and then by the latest topic that the sermon was on that Sunday. And you as disciple makers are sitting back saying, this is not the way it should be. They should, in and of themselves, like there, there should be the Spirit of God in them, conviction in them that's making them walk. Like they shouldn't be dependent on what we're preaching each week. Like that shouldn't be the, the whole of their desire for Jesus. It's the latest topic. So as a disciple maker, you can work <laughs> in your own strength all day long trying to keep the balloon off the ground. Or you can pray that a spirit fills it that's going to keep it lifted high all the time. You can pray for revelation. It's been said that disciple makers should be fruit inspectors, but I would add they need to be root inspectors as well. You see the fruit of someone's life by their actions, but disciple makers get to the core of the issues. There's things going on 
behind the scenes that need to be dealt with. Because you can inspect fruit all day long, but what good does it do for the kingdom if some roots aren't dug up and then planted firmly in Christ? Well, I could give you, I could give you um, a few different examples, but let me just say this. And I don't have much time, so I'm going to have to rifle through the rest of this. Silas, you know my boy, I talk about him nonstop all the time. I've been kind of disappointed lately because he doesn't have a lot of spiritual desire. I know he's two, so kind of got some high expectations. But we pray. We teach him how to pray. Um, and he just doesn't even want to pray. Like We're like, okay, God, let's pray for our food, Silas. And, okay. um, and he still prays. He was sick like six months ago, and so he starts his prayers off. He's like, God, please heal me. Help me feel better. And it's like, dude, you've, you've been healed for like six months, and we can move past that. He's like, thank you for my green beans, and thank you for my whatever. He'll do it sometimes, but we've got to force it. But at night before we go to bed, we have a routine, and I love putting him to sleep um, at night. And, uh, and we sit in the chair, and we read a book, and then we sing a song, and we pray, and, and then we snuggle uh, in the dark for a little bit, and then I put him in his crib, and, and then he falls asleep. But when we pray, I got frustrated the other day because he wasn't, again, wanting to pray much with me. And I was like this close to just turn into full dad mode and be like, okay, you know what? No more song, no more stupid books. We're going to have like a 24-hour prayer <laughs> revival session, me and you. I'm going to lock the door. Mama, slide some food under the door. This is, we're going to get right before God. And I remember the spirit just convicting me, Brian, pray that I would reveal myself to him. He's like, no, nah, he's too. He doesn't get it. Just force him how to look like a Christian. <laughs> you know, like, even me, I find myself wanting to do that. But I did. I sat back and I said, God, I pray you fill this little boy with your Holy Spirit. God, that you would reveal yourself. Prayers that I used to pray a lot more often. And the next night, which was last night, we got done reading our book. And we prayed. And he prayed with me. He said, I said, you want to sing a song? He said, sing to God. Give me a twinkle, twinkle, little star, okay. So I made up the song about God. We sang it. And then he just looked up at the ceiling, just kind of half drunk looking, but <laughs> I'm assuming it was the spirit. And he just said, for the first time, he just said, God loves me. And I was like, yes. Yes, he does. A little boy who only knows what's happening because of the things that are right in front of his face. There's an invisible God, and he's got just, you know, half sleep and half spirit in his eyes saying, God loves me. I'm like, why didn't I do that? Years ago, why didn't I pray for revelation at the beginning? It would have taken a lot of frustration out. God's got to be the one doing the work. Last but not least. Then the people said to Samuel, who is that? Who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. Remember last chapter, there were a few people who were haters and they didn't want Saul as king. And so now after the war's done, the Israelites are saying, let's go get those guys who hated Saul and let's kill them, right? Because that's what we should do. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gugal, and there they said they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. 
There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Last thing we see is our job is to point to Jesus. Our job is to point to Jesus. So again, Saul, he was anointed king the chapter before. Some people loved it. Men of valor went with him to his home, while other people hated it. He's got people who love him and support him and people who hate him. And now he's won this battle. He's got most everyone on his side. And some of his guys are like, let's go get those people who hated you. Remember? Let's go get them and let's kill them. And you know what it's like. We're tempted when people attack us to want to fight for ourselves, to stand up for ourselves. But in Christ, remember, you die to yourself. You die to your your reputation, your need for approval uh, of others. You find those things in Christ alone. And so it's easy to think, man, it would be, <laughs> if I was Saul, I would just say, let's kill him. But Saul does what only a man who knows, hey, you can win the fight. You can think like people can praise you, but the one who won the war is really God. He does what only men and women who, who recognize that. Because every battle you've ever been in, God is the one winning these battles. When you turn to him, he's winning these battles. And he says, no, 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 I don't care about what they said about me. This is about God. This is about the Lord, and we're going to keep it on him. And that's what you and I do. It's our job to point to the Lord. Let me ask you, can you honestly say that in hard times, whatever battle you got going on, that you find yourself praising God in that time? It's difficult, right? Because we wonder, where are you? Why am I even fighting this? But you know how this plays out. You know, you know what Jesus has done already for you is enough for what you're facing or will face. But like Israel, when, you're, when your focus shifts to the Lord, recognizing, man, I'm going to praise him before I've even seen deliverance from this current situation, before I even feel relief from this current situation, your mind, your spirit, your heart is renewed before the Lord. And that's what Israel wanted to do. Let's go back up, Samuel says. Let's renew the kingdom. I'll tell you what. One pleasure of disciple making is is helping people to see Jesus in their story. Like That's what we do for one another. When our perspective is skewed, we remind each other, Jesus is in your story. Right? Jesus is in your story. And sometimes it's difficult. I had a gal uh, park in the parking lot a few months ago. And I, I didn't know what was going on. I saw her out the window, and I thought, oh, she's just been sitting in her car for a long time. And I thought, oh, I hope everything's all right. Eventually, she came walking in. She's a middle-aged gal. Uh, she'd been a pastor's wife for a long time, and life had not turned out the way that she thought. Uh, they were living in a house that was falling apart. Her husband was now working um, a little bit more than a minimum wage job. Ministry had, had made them bitter. Uh, the church they were at previously, there was a falling out. The leadership wasn't kind to them. They were just jaded from the whole experience. She was angry. And she was very honest with me. She said, my marriage is struggling. I'm angry because God hasn't provided. I'm angry because uh, we don't have much money. I mean, and she was just laying it on the line because at the age of 50 or wh- whatever she was close to, she was thinking, I would be somewhere else in life. Like I was going to take with my husband this ministry track, and yeah, we were going to start out poor, but eventually we'd have a nice house like everyone else. We'd be in one place. We'd be doing ministry. It would all be wonderful. God would bless it, and it'd be great. And what I saw was someone who said, I want to die to Jesus as long as I can still have the American dream with it. I want to be a minister 
as long as I can still have the American dream. But she was sensitive and, and, um, and obviously fragile. And I said, after listening for a long period of time, I said, can I, can I be honest and say some things that might be hard? Uh, I don't want to say it if you're not ready for it. And she said, yeah, that's what I came here for. And so I asked her, I said, tell me one way that God hasn't provided for you. One way that God has not provided for you financially. Well, I mean, we're just not in the house that I thought we would have, and we've gone from place to place. But one way that right now Jesus is not holding up your entire life financially. Well, I'm not technically he is. Give me one way that he has failed you in your marriage. We went through the whole thing again. Every area of life we went through. Tell me one way God has failed you. And by the end of this conversation, it was a long conversation. I think we were both under the impression, Jesus is all over your story. And you're letting your emotions dictate and guide you and your circumstances. And I know that seems hard and I feel for you. But Jesus is right in the middle of your story. He has never left you. Are you where you thought you would be? No. Are you exactly where God wants you to be? Yes. Perspective changed. Marriage has been healed. You're back in ministry. That's not the moral of the story. That things will just get way better. But what I'm saying is your perspective can change quick. You and I get to point each other to Jesus no matter what we're going through. He's in the middle of your mess right now. Do you believe that? Because when he's Lord, he doesn't leave you when kingdom times get hard. I know, um, as I close out, I'll say this. I know it's the month of May. I know it's busy. I know there's a lot going on. I know it's a time of change. And it's going to be more tempting now when things are hectic. This summer, when you let your guard down a bit, to find yourself fighting battles on a daily basis, stressed out on a daily basis, worn by the world on a daily basis in ways that God is not intending for you to be. Don't accept the power of Jesus for your own salvation and not welcome his power into the everyday stuff of life. The gospel is enough for all of it. Do you believe that? Let's pray.